Hello. You're on with Nick and Fiona. Well, I think you've got to deal with the past to eventually solve the present. Welcome to The Playlist. I'm Fiona Williams and I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Bassine. Hey, Nick. Hello. Happy 50th um, Playlist what? episode. <laughs> yeah, happy anniversary. Yeah, 50 episodes of The Playlist. This this is episode 50. It is. What do you give for a 50th anniversary? Because I didn't get anything, but um, go to the shops. I want to say gold. I always go to gold. <laughs> always bet on gold. Go for gold, gold Nick. Anyway. Yeah, so we've got a lot to get through because it's a big special um, 50th um, anniversary episode. <laughs> they're all special. Episode. Well, they're, they're all quite special. But there's a lot a lot of news we need to cover. The cancellation of Roseanne, some controversy over a show that we have, um, Full Frontal with Samantha B and her Samantha comments. B. Yeah, her comments about Ivanka Trump. Uh, but we're also, we've got a couple of chats with um, Vincent Cassell, who's in the new movie Gauguin, which is in theaters this week. And we've got a chat with Simon Baker, whose movie Breath. He's going great, comes yeah, in doing very well. This podcast contains some coarse language. So the biggest entertainment news of the week was the cancellation of the show, the reboot, Roseanne. Mm. After Roseanne Barr tweeted that an aide to Obama... A black woman looked like a combination of the Muslim Brotherhood and yeah. Planet of the Apes. Horrendously racist. Yes. And considering the legacy of racism in America and um, and how and the denigration of black people using that kind of comparison. Not limited to America, Rima. It's happened here. Sure. So it was very swift, the reaction from ABC, the network that airs Roseanne in the US. They canceled the show. Here in Australia, Channel 10 pulled the remainder of the episodes. I think they were up to six. I've watched them up to that. Yeah, it was going to be your What Have You Been Watching, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, um, yes, because 10 started a bit later than, than the US. So in the, in the US, they'd completed the season yes. and they're not renewing it. Right. And it's it's an enormous deal because it was, by a wide margin, a number one hit mm. and set to make uh, the network $60 million and... It was just they were building their schedule around it. It was a linchpin for their plans. Yeah, they pulled her out last week at the upfronts the, yes. in the major presentation. And but she's gone. Right. And so now she's gone. Cast members have denounced the comments. Her talent agency dropped her as a client. There's been a lot of fallout. And extreme right-wingers are calling it a freedom of speech issue, complaining about political correctness. And it has become, well... Maybe not as much as something, some other uh, examples, but it's emblematic of the toxic political situation in America and in lots of other places where people are increasingly becoming more tribal with their political views. Yes. I had not watched the show. You had, like like we say, it was going to be your what have you been watching. Right. So you had quite strong views about it before any of this anyway, didn't you? Yes, for on a few different levels. First, um, I'm so tired of people rebooting old shows. It's a cliche now to say it, but it, it feels like we're running out of ideas. Why can't we, why can't a bunch of people get together and put together a, um, a working class uh, family comedy that's new? Because that's the thing, because it was a working class comedy and they are rare, it's such a shame that it's her in this show because that might put people off doing other working class comedies or, you know, like all the families in sitcoms are aspirationally well off and in movies too, probably, unless unless it's a depressing <laughs> indie or something. Yeah. But, um, yeah, they'll have these beautiful houses and you think how can they possibly afford that? But I think animation does middle-class comedy really well 
working class comedy really well. I mean, like Simpsons and Bob's Burgers, I yeah. they do fantastically. But it's when it's live action that oh. it's it's so rare, and that's it's so disappointing that it's a Roseanne attached issue. I guess I'm just not sure why anyone um, is all that surprised. Oh, it's so, totally right because yeah. yeah. they knew she was unhinged on Twitter, yeah, which ha- has been for years, uh, and has made similar tweets in the past. Of course, now that all this has come out, that yeah. particular tweet, there are other comparisons. Of a similar nature she's made in the past, but she wasn't the star of the hit sitcom of the day at that time. Um, The head of the network wasn't an African-American woman, which is so important to have diverse people in studios. But also this is a Disney decision as well, sort of the higher-ups of Disney. And it's a corporate decision. It's a moral decision. Right. So I have a couple of thoughts about that because Mm. I I guess I'm, to me, it's more of a corporate decision Mm. because they must have crunched the numbers and they saw that having a hit show with a, Crazy right, racist. Yeah, that that's just not going to work for the bottom line. And so I'm not I'm not really convinced that this is a sign of some kind of cultural shift. Mm. I'm not sure about the people um, saying this just shows you what diverse hiring can do, mm. because it's prescribing a decision to a woman based on correct her cultural background yeah. rather than this just seems like a if you're making a moral decision this seems like this is a no brainer exactly anyone could, should make this call. And so, well, but she, also, oh, but she also, is a black woman who is the head of the network. Yeah. yeah. But before this, like, they made a decision to not air a, an episode of Blackish, the yeah. African-American family sitcom, um, because it, because of the way it addressed something topical and controversial of athletes protesting at, um, the anthem. Yeah. And so that, I mean, that doesn't seem progressive and, um, I'm just not sure that this that that she's the champion of these kinds yeah. of causes. I, I think she made a business decision. I totally agree also. with that too. Yeah, and also Disney did as well because Disney owns the network. Yeah, they've just had enormous success with Black Panther. Disney has a sketchy reputation anyway. <laughs> yeah, back in the day, Walt, in this area. So I think it's a very conscious protect the brand decision. Yes, and also to to reiterate that point, they've just on the upfronts, which is the announcement of the upcoming schedule. So this is the time they're talking to advertisers about who's going to yeah, be advertising when, on the network in the, against these shows. This is when they've been having those uncomfortable conversations about where people don't want to advertise on Roseanne or on ABC more broadly. Yeah, if they kept Roseanne. Yeah. Now, you haven't seen the show. No. You've seen the original. Yeah, I used to watch the original. So my uh, curiosity, like everybody's, was piqued by the first episode because they deal with Trump. And I think... I can't help but think that that is a big part of why it was so successful in the U.S. On a content level, I don't mind that the show's canceled because I think it stinks. Yeah. I've seen six episodes. It's powerfully unfunny. It's super hacky and trite. My seven-year-old did think it was funny, though. <laughs> he was laughing at the way they talked. I asked him what he thought was so funny. He, he said um, they say words that are funny. On that level? Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> I was just genuinely surprised. It's nice to see actions have consequences. <laughs> like I was like, oh, wow, that, they've done something. You know, for whatever reasons, we've talked about motivations behind it, but it was like, yes, oh, someone and does something terrible and there's a consequence. I like that. Yes. And far from being a, a freedom of speech issue where yeah. the government is clamping down on somebody, I mean, that's, that's a freedom of speech issue. But, yeah, you can say whatever you want, but then society decides yeah. what to do with you. Something might happen afterwards. Yeah. And now, as of recording, 
There is an attempt to conflate some comments that Samantha B, who hosts Full Frontal, which is an SBS Viceland program, right now streaming at SBS On Demand, yep. there's an attempt to conflate something she said in that same Roseanne pile, which is a sort of the, a right star has said something terrible and she got her show cancelled. Now a lefty has said something that people find terrible, maybe she should be cancelled too. And what does she say? I saw, I've seen the words. Yes. But what does she say? So Samantha B in the recent episode that's just gone to air, has a go at Ivanka Trump for posting that photograph of herself and her child with a heart, my heart, motherhood, hashtag, whatever, blessed or something, um, on the same day as there was outrage about Trump administration policies separating children of undocumented migrants from their parents. So she and called her for doing that, the timing of, not for, not for posting a tweet of her child, but for timing the tweet at the time right. where there was outrage about children being separated from their parents. She called her a quote-unquote feckless cunt. And maybe she should have a word to her father about his policies. After decades of ignoring the issue, Americans are finally paying attention. Well, most of us. Ivanka Trump, who works at the White House, chose to post the second most oblivious tweet we've seen this week. You know, Ivanka, that's a beautiful photo of you and your child, but let me just say, one mother to another, do something about your dad's immigration practices, you feckless cunt. He listens to you. So, of course, that's now blown up. People are comparing it to Roseanne. There's a conflation of the two issues of a racist tweet and then and a use of an offen- a word people find offensive in relation to the president's daughter. Samantha Bee has apologised for the use of the word. Why does she apologise? It is a loaded term and I think also Samantha Bee is a out-and-out feminist, and it's it's a very loaded female gendered term. You know, not a great word. I mean, she's only apologised for using that particular word. She hasn't apologised for having a go at Ivanka. Right. It's for that word. Do you think that, that that word stirs Americans more than Australians? Do you think that's part of it, that it's a, it's a different...? Uh... Well, I mean, there's certainly a more casual usage in Australia. Yeah. In the vernacular. In the, it's not that she used it at all. It's that she used it against Ivanka Trump. I think using a different word would have avoided all of the, well, you just cancelled a right-wing show, even though it's not explicit. Well, Honestly, I think if she said another word, it would have still come out. That's, yeah. The question for me is in a very toxic arena where Trump has set the tone from the beginning of his campaign, why are we apologizing for anything? Exactly. Why is, not yeah. we as in... Samantha B's on my side, but why is anyone apologizing for I'm on Samantha B's side. I love yeah, it. Well, sure. uh, but also, like, whatever word she used, she criticized Ivanka Trump for posting that at that time and comment whatever I have to declare my views on this. I think she was right to do so. Are you all right with the strong language? I mean, do you think... I am. Well, also, I mean, let's go back a month to Michelle Wolf hosting the White House Correspondents' Dinner and right. eliciting equal amount of outrage for daring to make a joke about the smoky eyeshadow of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the White House press secretary, which was a comment on her ability to do nice smoky eyeshadow. It was, the joke was on what is the content of the eyeshadow? It's the ashes of burnt truth. Right. So I, I think whatever she said, there was an attempt to put her on the same par as horrendously, objectively racist tweet by Roseanne Barr. So look, she's apologised as we record the outrage is all playing out on Twitter, which is where most of it does. The occupant of the White House hasn't weighed in, but yeah, I'm clock's, sure the clock's yeah, ticking I'm on sure that one. I'm sure it's coming. Yeah. You can watch Full Frontal with Samantha B on SBS Viceland. Thursdays. Thursday nights. So this week, the movie Gauguin, 
about the French painter is released in theaters. We got a chance to talk to the star of the movie, the fantastic Vincent Cassell. He's fantastic. He's in a lot of movies. And he's been, he's such an SBS star. We've had him, he's been in so many movies we've aired over the years. Here's our chat with Vincent Cassell. Thanks for joining us on The Playlist, Vincent. I guess obvious place to start with Gauguin. What did you want to tell about his story at this particular time in, in Tahiti, the film? Well, I'm just an actress. I mean, you know, I'm not the one to decide what the movie's telling you. But from the very beginning, uh, I had this, this conversation with uh, Edouard, the, the director, and I said, let's not make a movie about a painter, you know? Nobody cares. Let's make a movie that anybody can watch, even somebody who doesn't know Gauguin, who doesn't care about painting, what's left. Well, it's the story of a man, you know, who wants to run away from a society because he has this fantasy, and he gets there, and the fantasy is not what he thought it would be. This is the story of a man who realizes, who realizes that he will never be what he was dreaming to be, uh, meaning a savage, meaning uh, a kid, a children. He wanted to, uh, to forget about everything he learned, but it's impossible. You can't go back, and, uh, and time goes faster than you, and, and at a certain point, you know, through the love story, that impossible love story we're depicting in the, in the movie, you know, it gives you a, a sense of his... Uh, of his lack of impuissance, uh, uh, I would be, uh, I, I forgot the, name, the word in English, but he, he realizes that he doesn't have the, the weapons for that. He doesn't have the ability to become what he wants to be. Gauguin's kind of a, a controversial figure. I mean, whenever you read about his work, there's inevitably mentions of, I mean, syphilis, pedophilia, because of the, the women that he was with supposedly in, in Tahiti were very young. Did any of that stuff factor into how this was all going to go? Well, yes, of course. I mean, it's, it's very present. Well, there's, first of all, most of that, that you know, uh, thing going on about Gauguin is especially because of the second part of his life, you know, when he goes back there in the Marquise and he became very cynical. He realizes that, you know, he's going to die, he's sick, he lost one of his kids. And it became that Gauguin, that dark Gauguin that people, you know, have a problem with. And me included. <laughs> well, he was still with a very young woman, that's for sure. But I mean, back in the days over there, I don't think it was something that's particular. You know, it's it's not like it was like today. Nowadays, people are much more conscious about you know the the danger of uh, of mixing uh, older and younger people. At the time, I don't think it was that obvious, and I don't think it was something that was seen that much as a as a scandalous thing to do. Plus, the other thing yeah, I wanted to tell you about is the fact that the movie is really an adaptation of Noah Noah with the book, right. the book yes. that he wrote His travelogue. You know, on a daily basis. Exactly. And the thing is that already that book is something that he, you know, he wrote the story the way he wants people to remember him. So there is only one woman in that book called Tehura, the muse. But the truth is that Tehura was only one, but maybe 10 or 15 right. you know, when, uh -huh. when he was there. So, yes, but the, by the minute we decided to uh, make an adaptation of Noah Noah, I guess we had to, uh, well, you know, I think the, the character is already so um, so tough to watch. So uh, even even the way we depicted him, he's not a sympathetic character. Right. So maybe yeah. 
we added pedophilia on top of all that, that would have been a little too much. <laughs> He's got that right, right. right. And, I mean, you mentioned, you know, in his later life, you know, you have problems with that side of it too. Um, that idea of where you draw the line and sort of separating the art from the artist, you know, nowadays doing that is quote-unquote problematic and, you know, modern artists are held more to account for their behaviour beyond the art. Did you talk about how, how to draw the line? And, and are you anticipating a bit of blowback about that? Well, the thing is that, you know, when you really watch closely, it's very hard to judge artists. We could be a little more judgmental about the human being, you know. But I'm not sure it was really the idea, because when you look closely, uh, so many people have some dark sides, you know. So the drawback about, you know, is a lot of young women and all that, you know. Yes, maybe some people, we didn't really have that in France, uh, when we release the movie, maybe we will in the future. But what can I say? I mean, we're just you know we're doing the move you know a movie about that guy, and uh, yes, there were some dark sides about it. But I mean, I guess in a lot of artists' life, when you really look closely, there is always a dark spot. For example, his greed for young women, I guess, was somehow. I don't think it was really like. I don't think it was about having sex. And I guess he just wanted to possess what he wanted to become. Or something like that, you know, through mm-hmm. the, the love stories he had with those women. And by the way, he was so obsessed that he, that's all he painted when he was there, you know, yeah. only young women. You're not known necessarily for playing, quote unquote, good guys. Um, there's a there's definitely a darkness to your performances and to the, to the characters that you play. Was that, do you think casting you as Gauguin implies somehow a kind of darkness? Well, I mean, to, to, from my point of view, you know, it's, it looks like any kind of character implies a bit of darkness. Already they're really flat and, uh, right, and far right. away from reality. I really believe that any character, any character, have both sides. When you only portray one, it's becoming, you know, an entertaining movie, but it doesn't have anything to do with a, with a, Real life. With a sense of reality. Yeah. You have to have both sides. I mean, we have dark sides, whatever, whoever we are. It's the way we balance and the way we fight, fight against it that is interesting, that is interesting to show eventually on, on screen. So I have this reputation of playing guys that are not so nice, not so clean. But I mean, for me, it's just, I think, the only way to represent reality. Good guys don't exist. You know, playing good guys, they don't exist. Uh, guys that are fighting with their dark side to become good eventually exist. Right. Can I ask you about, um, I'll take you back in time a little bit, to uh, 1995, La Haine. It seemed to, um, at the time, uncover or capture an image of the suburbs of Paris that people hadn't seen before. 20 years later, what's your impression of how those populations, those people, how that situation has evolved, given uh, everything that's been going on in France over the last few years? Well... I think you've got to deal with the past to eventually solve the present. What happened in France because of the colonies, because of the war of Algeria, because of all that, France asked a lot of people to come here and work and to build France in the 70s and 60s. Right. The majority of those people were coming from the ex-colonies or from the Algeria, mostly from Algeria nowadays. I think 80% of immigration in France comes from Algeria. So it's really the story of France and Algeria that makes what France is today, you know? Right. And the thing is that you can't really pretend that France has been wonderfully educated in the way we treated those problems and those situations in the past. Mm. So I guess, you know, yes, we have a, 
The people who grew up in the suburbs are angry. They have a, a problem of identity. I mean, the way the government tells the story, you know, the story of, of France in school, I mean, it has nothing to do with reality. I think we have to face the past and to make it clear that somehow in the past France has done some terrible thing and eventually we might clean up the situation nowadays. So the way it's evolving since La Haine, not really good as we know. Actually, it's getting much worse, <laughs> to be honest, mm. unfortunately. Mm. Right. The and only thing that is positive is that people are mixing and mixing and mixing and mixing more, meaning that the face of the French identity is changing. I'm pretty uh, sure that with the time, you know, we're going to solve this. You know, people, I mean, it's just that we have to, we're going through a transition right now, I think. You know, it's a, France has changed and uh, not everybody realizes that yet. Mm. Have you have you seen that movie recently? Have you um, rewatched it? Have you rewatched it? No, honestly, uh, there are so many movies coming out. I don't really watch my movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've made a lot of I movies, so really... <laughs> uh, could you anticipate? Could you foresee maybe revisiting that? Sort of like doing the, the characters, what remain of them um, nowadays? Sort of like Trainspotting, like Trainspotting did, yeah, yeah, did twenty years on. Could that be something? Is that something you've considered or? No, well, first of all, I'm dead. Oh, yeah, I you, died. I know. Right. <laughs> Maybe in so, flashback. Uh, <laughs> Maybe a ghost. Plus, <laughs> and plus, no, I don't feel attached to the movie uh, to the point where I should make a sequel or whatever. This is done. Yeah. It's, it's, still, it's still going on. I mean, people talk to me. I mean, really young kids come to me and, and talk to me about La Hand. So, you know, the movie is there. It's still uh, alive somehow. Mm. And now, no, I'm, I'd rather do other stuff. But <laughs> to go back to La Hand for me is... a uh, Totally out of subject. Yeah, what about enough. um? What about Shrek? Do you want? Do you ever think about revisiting <laughs> that? Uh, I think somehow I I did revisit it on many occasions. It wasn't called Shrek, but the, the guy, <laughs> the French guy in an American movie. <laughs> we would like to ask our guests what they have been watching. If you haven't watched, been watching your own, what what have you been watching? Uh, lately, I've seen a movie about. Uh, it's called Le Redoutable. By uh, oh, yes. yes. uh, with my uh, dear friend uh, Louis Garel, and I thought it was really, really cool. Oh, great. I think uh, what Louis Garel is doing in this movie is something that only him could have done, I mean, in France today. I mean, he's, he's doing it, it's, it's a mix of comedy, but it, at the same time, it tells you a lot about movie making, it tells you a lot about the history of, of France in those years. I thought it was really interesting and really on spot. Yeah, sure. No, we cool. haven't had that here yet. But um, look, well, thank you so much. It's yeah. been a real treat to talk to you. Thanks a lot. All the best. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was our chat with Vincent uh, Cassell. I think you pronounce it Vincent. But, um, you know. We have another chat with Australian national treasure Simon Baker, who has written and directed the movie Breath, which is doing really well in cinemas right now. Here's a chat. Well, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, Tim Winton, you know, is the closest thing we've got to a poet laureate here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you have to consider in adapting such a well-known novel and also one of his? Well, obviously, I wanted to keep the spirit of the book alive in the film, um, but there's parts you have to lose. You have to get in there and do a bit of culling. And to do that, you have to not be afraid of doing it. So. A big part of that process for me was just being allowed. So that, that you know, that was a conversation with Tim over dinner when I just said, "Look, you know, here's what I want to do," and for me to really commit to doing this, and I want to do it in the spirit of the book. I want to make a film that feels 
like I felt when I read the book, but I'm going to have to take to it with a bit of a machete in places. And, and he said, look, go for it. He said, um, it's not my book anymore. Once I've finished, it's everyone else's. So now it's yours to play around with. And um, from that point on, I felt he liberated me in a way and, um, and I was able to, to get into it. So how much, it's not autobiographical, obviously, but it, how much of it is your story? In the well, I think, I think what's great about the book is that it, it's a lot of people's stories. I mean, I think most people that read it could relate to a lot of the characters, if not all of them, and not just the teenage boys or Sando or Eva, but also the Mr. and Mrs. Pike and Queenie for that matter. So I think it's very relatable and a common and major character in both the book and the film is the landscape. And, and, and that's the case in a lot of Tim's books. He writes so beautifully about the delicacy of our landscape and our environment and then the brutality and the harshness of it at the same time. And it's almost, it's magical the way he kind of takes everyday things, familiar things and re-examines them and puts them under a microscope and then, and then shows, shows us them again. And, and we're awakened to, our senses are awoken to something that we've taken for granted all the time. And it's kind of a two-part question really, I guess, but, um, you know, the way the film is about boys and um, conformity and becoming boys becoming men and, and your role as Sando was the father figure or the pseudo-father figure, um, how, how did you kind of establish that, you know, what, what were you trying to say in, in taking that story on and equally with female characters so that they're a part of this story too and not... You know, not a device, you know, if one of the better yeah. words. Yeah. Well, I think the important point, initial main point, is that the film is about identity. And, yes, the fragility of that sort of adolescent psyche is had to be ever-present. No matter how dangerous, uh, how much risk was taken, that, that, that fragility that we all experience, that sort of open uh, wound of adolescence has to be on the surface. And, you know, an example, like Queenie, for example, there's, there is that sort of yearning to be a woman and to move into that next stage. And uh, that, was an, that was an important thing for me to capture in the book. Um, the idea of mentorship to set up a, a, a masculine sort of ideal or a, or a masculine stereotype and then in, then create that in an authentic way and then invert that. Um, I think, you know, that was a challenging thing to do it so that, or subvert it, so that it hits you by surprise, so that you understand you may not have been able to articulate it, but you understand inside how that feels to not want to or have to conform to a stereotype. So, yeah, that was a very important part of it for me in, in this story, in this, in this film. Yeah, sure. Were you hesitant or um, did you have to give special care to the young boy and older woman love The process? relationship? Yes. Because um, he's 14, or 13 going on 14? Well, I don't ever that? really stipulate what his age is, but he starts off, I mean, we see a progression. It's, you know, you, you, you could probably assume that the film takes place over three or four years. Oh, right. right? You know, they're little at the beginning yeah. and they're sort of young men at the end. So, you know, I, I, I make a clear point not to 
point out their age at any different time, but if you watch the film, they do grow, even though we only shot over six weeks. But we, you, you, you see them develop and the story gets more real and, you know, there is that, there is that line that we all cross that we're not aware that we cross over at the time, but in hindsight you can see where you've crossed over that line from childhood to adulthood. So uh, the sexual nature of the film, you know, had to be dealt with in, in a both a joyful way and a respectful way, and then and it's heavy. Things get real um, pretty quickly. And I, I mean, one of the most heartbreaking moments in the film for me is when he when the, the kid says, "I love you," and, he, and I think he genuinely believes that. And um, there's an honesty and a vulnerability and a rawness to his psyche that just breaks your heart in that moment. Yeah, and and on the scenes with Eva, like where it does get real, um, mm. and um, you know, with, with the kink element, mm. um, we how much of that we did you consider how much to show when it sort of um... yeah, there was a lot of deliberation about that, but I didn't ever want to exploit it. I wasn't, I didn't feel the need to be unnecessarily shocking with it or gratuitous. Uh, I just just wanted to touch on it. And it's more about how circumstances and situations land on character. So there's a real intimacy to the, the style of the film in the way we follow Pikelet's story. We're very close with him and he's, he's the eyes and ears of the audience. And at certain times we jump out to realise where he is in the scheme of things. And it's just like all the surfing stuff. The surfing stuff, I think, works mainly because we follow the character into the circumstance, into the situation, and we live with the character as opposed to just sitting back and watching a whole bunch of surfing. We're engaged in what's happening in the water. And with the sexual content, we're engaged with how it's landing on him. Uh, we usually like to wrap up by asking a guest um, what they've been watching. Movies, TV, loving, hating. What are you into? What have you been into lately? Uh, just recently, I watched the Wild Wild Country yeah. All right. uh, yeah. documentary about yeah. um, the Sanyasins. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was good. All right. I loved that they had all that old footage. I liked, I liked the, the combination of, of interviews, people talking about the past, and then the fact that they filmed just about everything in that period, the whole propaganda machine and they could cut in between the same people sort of 20, 30 years ago. It was fantastic. Um, well, thank you so much. That was an thank extremely you. quick 10 yeah. minutes, but <laughs> thanks for your time. Thank you. So that was Simon Baker, who stars in Breath, and also that's his directorial debut. Breath is in cinemas now. Well, that's our show. Make sure you leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe as well. If you want to get in touch, email us at film at sbs.com.au or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at SBS Movies. I can be found being delightful on Twitter at Nick Bassine. And you can find me on Twitter at anything but Fifi. The playlist is produced by Dan Barrett and Jeremy Wilmot, who also handled the audio mixing. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thanks.